It's a sunny day in Vancouver and it's September 10th, uh, 2009. And I'm very, very lucky to be sitting outside in this, on this beautiful day having tea and samosas with two gentlemen that I have read about in the land of lost content. And uh, now I meet them in person. Um, who do we have at the table? Surprise! <laughs> I'm John Conway. I was a faculty member on the Department of History and International Relations at the University of British Columbia and I was uh, recruited uh, at the end of 1960 uh, by the President Norman Mackenzie to be a member of a committee which had met to hear from two students who had come to him with a new and innovative and rather exciting proposal that Canada should set up its own overseas volunteer service. Fantastic. Which was eventually to become known as the Canadian University Service Overseas, CUSO. At UBC uh, we were, uh, had these two bright students, one of them is here today, Michael Clay, the other is Brian Marson, now a senior official in the Department of Finance in Ottawa, and uh, they had written to President McKenzie and <laughs> said that they wanted to get his support for this suggestion. So he uh, immediately convened a meeting of all the senior administrators of the university, if I remember rightly there were eight deans present, and uh, we held it in the board and senate room of the university and I remember it very well. Uh, it was a wholly positive experience. The two students came, they gave their spiel, and uh, the deans uh, all said, yes, this is an ideal thing to So yeah. the next thing was to set up a continuing committee, and for that purpose, uh, a choice of chair was made to uh, give Professor Belshaw of Sociology and Anthropology, who had extensive experience overseas, particularly in the Pacific area. He was invited to be the chair, mm -hmm. and I was, I think, junior secretary, something like that. And our remit was uh, to get this plan put forward by the students into action as soon as possible. And because uh, already various, various overseas connections had been established, it wasn't very long before we received an invitation uh, from the officials in Ghana. Could we possibly supply Ghana with uh, young volunteers in the field of home economics? Oh, home economics. Home first. economics. Mm. And so, naturally enough, the universities. School of Home Economics uh, became the recruiting ground mm -hmm. and we found uh, two students there whose names uh, Michael will shortly give you uh, <laughs> who were promptly recruited and indeed uh, very quickly um, were all you know, uh, oriented yeah. and within uh, by the end of August uh, they had already left and were serving in Ghana. So we can claim that UBC was in fact 
<laughs> even before these people in Toronto, we actually had people in the field, and these two girls were, so to speak, our pioneer. And um, the program just grew from there. To begin with, uh, it was funded entirely by the people at the other end. They were prepared to pay the uh, travel expenses and the salaries, and I think the only thing that UBC was required to do was to make some small adjustment grants and perhaps a, something in the way of tropical clothing or something yeah. like that, but it was very, very slight. There was no... President Mackenzie had warmly welcomed this suggestion, but had made it clear that on no circumstances should it involve any expenditure by UBC. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Since he was cost-conscious then uh, and continued to be so. Uh -huh. But the upshot of this parallel effort going on in Toronto, yeah. also in McGill, was that the uh, uh, feeling was that this should develop into a all-Canadian program. Mm -hmm. So by the beginning of 1961, various feelers were put out uh, suggesting that it would be a good idea if we could find some means of establishing a national organization of which the uh, Toronto committee, the UBC committee and so on would all become constituent parts. Yes. The Torontonians weren't terribly happy about this. They wanted to run their own show <laughs> and they really didn't think anybody else was in, in the same league. Yes, they were. in fact uh, we had uh, we had pretty good support at the level of the university presidents, and so when the university presidents came to their next meeting nationally, which uh, was in June, and we had a meeting in uh, McGill University in the Red Path Library, uh, these university presidents uh, and their various officials connected with overseas activities met together and decided that yes, they should form a national organization and we should call it the Canadian University Service Overseas. Michael, I mean, um, John, Professor Conway, were you there? I was there, yes. Oh, it sounded like from the book that I read it was quite a tumultuous meeting. Well, there were various points of view, and not all, uh, as I say, the Torontonians were not terribly happy about this development. Yes. But the uh, consensus certainly was that this would be something which uh, Canada should do, mm. and if it was put under the right kind of auspices, namely the very respectable auspices of the university presidents, yes, uh, who would then lend their name, so to speak, to the Canadian University Service Overseas, Yes. Uh, this would then be in good hands. Now, I understand there was a young lady that stood up at that meeting, and as people were discussing and, and uh, expressing their points of view, that she stood up and said, well, you know, I went and served overseas and talked about medical and support and how important it was to have that. And that's when this this motion passed pretty quickly after. Yes, and uh, certainly the, the, the general sentiment was that this was an admirable thing. It was high time Canadian students got on the bandwagon. All right. Of course, you know, we have to put this into a longer context. 
Canadian students had been volunteering for overseas work, particularly through the mission boards of the churches, mm -hmm. for generations. In fact, even before the First World War, the number of Canadians who were volunteers in the mission field uh -huh. was proportionately larger than any other country. Oh, oh, okay. And particularly in China. We had an uh -huh. enormous presence of Canadians in China. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of serving overseas in some capacity or other mm -hmm. uh, was not in that new. Yeah. What was new was that this was now in a secular context and is not just limited to church workers, yes. but was, as, as you said, medical workers, agricultural workers, yeah. or in the case of these home economics girls, I think they were they were especially in uh, in uh, in uh, women's training and so nutrition. Nutrition, exactly. Uh -huh. So that's that's really what the what was the novelty of it. But this, the sentiment was already, so to speak, in the air. Uh -huh. What wasn't in the air, of course, was money. Yes. So the question at that meeting was who was going to fund this? Because all of the university presidents shared Dr. Mackenzie's view mm -hmm. that this was a wonderful idea, but it, as long as it didn't cost them anything yes. in their own respective budgets. Uh -huh. So... And the, CEDAR uh, hadn't, wasn't in be, in, into being yet, was no, it? No, 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 no. The Department of External Aid, oh, as it was, was known, okay. uh, was very uh, limited in its scope. And to begin with, had a strong objection uh, to funding any private oh. group uh, INRs, that wasn't directly employed as part of the government structures. Yes. And the Department of External Aid, as it was, uh, had a rather limited mandate and certainly even more limited vision. Okay. So, it was left up to the private sector where they were going to look after themselves. Mm. And at that point, we got an enormous help from a key chap who was later to play such an important role, namely Louis Perrinbaum. Yes, who recently passed away. Who recently passed away, alas. Yes. And who would have loved to have been here to take part in the 50th anniversary. Yes. Louis Berenbaum was a, originally a Malaysian, mm. but had come to Britain, or particularly to Scotland, uh, early in life, and had taken his university career in Scotland. He emigrated to Canada in early, in about, I think, 1953, mm -hmm. and was appointed as the General Secretary of the World University Service. Wusk. Of Canada, uh -huh. Wusk, yes. uh, where he served for a number of years and launched an exceedingly interesting program, which still continues, uh, of sending students from Canada overseas to, for a short spell in the summer, yes. usually six or seven weeks, to investigate the conditions in this, that, or the other country. They went to a different country every year. Mm. And this was organized by a selection committee in every university. They, each one was told to find suitable student yes. uh, to form this team. So there were about 30 students, four or five faculty members, and off they went. And so this got the sort of feeling of international experience. Yes. So CUSO, in some sense, was a, a, a logical development of these ideas. Mm. And Louis Berenbaum was 
because of his experience in organizing these kind of things, was naturally uh, very interested. And he was there at this meeting in McGill and suggested that one of the difficulties of setting up such a national organization would be the need for a structure, visible and continuous structure, yeah. that would be funded. Mm. Well, the uh, Torontonians had already approached the then Premier, Prime Minister, mm -hmm. Diefenbaker, Diefenbaker okay. and had drawn no support, got the brush off in fact, largely because the Department of External Aid, you know, as I said, didn't think much of private initiatives. Yes. So uh, the, the ball was back in the in the Bayweek. But Louis Berenbaum had a rather easy job as assistant uh, on the Canadian Commission for UNESCO. Okay. Which was, wasn't a very, I would say, arduous task. So he volunteered that he would. Uh, undertake the organizational side and sort of sneak it into the budget of the Canadian Commission for UNESCO. Okay. Where it stayed for a year or so and in the meantime uh, he would undertake all his connections that he could to see that uh, uh, some better funding was put in place. Well, it was just at this time that Diefenbaker was kicked out and Lester Pearson became Prime Minister. And Lester Pearson had a much larger and more interesting horizon regarding... He was a very worldly man, wasn't well, he? Well, he was, had been, of course, Deputy Minister mm -hmm. of External Affairs. Oh, oh, okay. He had been, uh, uh, in fact, had been the uh, uh, Secretary for State for the External Affairs in, under Louis Saint Laurent. And so now, uh, as Prime Minister... And the Nobel Prize, too. And, um, and he was he the Nobel win, Prize he had win, For Suez. Had won the Nobel Prize for uh, the part he played during the Suez Crisis in 56. Oh, goodness, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so, naturally enough, you know, when uh, Louis Berenbaum uh, mobilized his forces in this direction, he got a much better hearing. In yeah. fact, very shortly afterwards, Cuso was the sort of became the most favoured pet of the this new government, mm -hmm. and was inundated with more money than they really could manage. But anyway, that's another matter. Mm -hmm. So uh, our task at UBC was quite simple. Uh, we knew what uh, was expected of us. Namely, we had to organise. We had to provide support for those people that were selected. Mm -hmm. We had to do the selection, we yeah. had to do the orientation, mm -hmm. and we had to try and interest the student body at large uh, in this new venture. And I'm glad to say uh, we, were, we didn't find any great difficulty in doing just that. That is fabulous. So we'll stop for a moment and continue on.